Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. It is hour two of the afternoon show. I'm Than Bennett sitting in for Bill Arnold today, and those are the opening words of the book of James in the New Testament. It's a beautiful book. I spent some time with it today, knowing that this conversation was ahead. It's five chapters, has a lot of wisdom, a lot of richness, but I think it's also a book that needs to be understood in proper context, including a cultural context, and one that is perhaps often misunderstood because some of that context is missing. And so I'm looking forward to the conversation that we're going to have this hour because our guest is going to help us understand that context. He is Dr. Michael Wise. Let me introduce him to you just a little bit here. He's a scholar in residence and a professor of Hebrew Bible and ancient languages at the University of Northwestern St. Paul. Dr. Wise focuses on ancient Judaism as a background to the rise of Christianity. He's an internationally recognized expert on the Dead Scrolls. I love that. I'm going to have to ask him about that. And I am blown away by this. He uses over 20, 20 languages in his research. Dr. Wise has an extensive list of academic achievements, and he recently completed his second PhD. I don't even have one, Dr. Wise, but he completed his second PhD in the field of classics at the University of Minnesota. So, Dr. Wise, I am... Very, very glad for the chance to visit with you and to pick your brain a little bit on the book of James. Thank you for taking the time. Well, Than, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a joy and a delight to get a chance to talk to you in this uh, context. I love it so much. I appreciate you being here. Now, before we jump in, before we get into the meat of our conversation, I'd love to hear just a little bit more about your background. I, I shared just a, a sliver of it there. But I am, I'm particularly fascinated by your extensive work with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So if you would, could you tell us just a little bit more about that and then maybe just a little bit more about yourself and how you came to this work and, and this focus? Yes, absolutely. So the Dead Sea Scrolls are, are just for many people don't know exactly what they are, but they've heard of them. So let me just say very briefly that they are a group of nearly a thousand texts that were found along the shores of the Dead Sea in modern-day Israel in 11 different caves. And they were found back in the late 40s and mid up to the mid-50s. And they were sequestered. Scholars, a certain very small group of scholars kept them and worked on them without allowing access to the generality of scholars for a long time. And only in the 1990s did they all come out. So, in a sense, this enormous treasure trove, really, of texts from the time of Jesus, written in Hebrew and Aramaic, a language related to Hebrew and Greek, uh, have only been around in full for about 30 years. And uh, it's an enormously important set of materials that show us the world of Jesus and show us the the text of the Old Testament 
that was the Bible that existed at that point. The texts were all written before the rise of our faith. And so there is no Christian text among the Dead Sea Scrolls. But they are a treasure trove for anyone who wants to understand our faith or the Bible or uh, of either testament. Um, so I've, I've devoted my life to the study of these ever since I became a scholar, which I did along the way. Uh, I was raised in a loving but a secular home. I became a Christian as a senior in high school. When I became a Christian, I sought advice from people who were much farther along in the faith, and they advised me that I should think about going into the ministry. And so I headed that way, then, and I was trained in seminary. I went to the Evangelical Free Church Seminary, known as uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and got my MDiv, which is the standard degree that a senior pastor would have. Uh, but along the way, I was attracted to, by my nature and maybe by my gifting, the idea of scholarship, and some of my professors and others uh, in the faith advised me that that was a good direction. So I went to the University of Chicago and got my first doctorate there in the study of ancient Judaism, which is the field that embraces the Dead Sea Scrolls. But I also have always been a person very much enthralled with the world of Jesus, of course, with the person of Jesus, much more than that, but the world of Jesus helps us understand the person. And so I also have acquired, as you mentioned, a second degree in the field of classics, which is the study of Greek and Latin uh, literature and culture and archaeology and history. In other words, uh, sort of the context of the New Testament is composed of the two branches of water, if you want to say it that way, kind of rivers that have a confluence in the study of the world of Jesus, that is ancient Judaism on the one side and Greek and Roman culture and language on the other side. Uh, so that's who I am. I'm a scholar of the world of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I'm a, I'm a pastor. I am ordained. I teach and have taught for over 20 years every week in church uh, to an adult Bible study. And I teach another one uh, in the midweek service at our church. So that's a little bit about me. That's a probably enough. Uh, happy to I, say I, more, but... I, I love it so much. I'm fascinated. I love what appears to be a lifelong commitment to learning, uh, especially, obviously, about the, the world of Jesus, as you called it. I actually want to ask a follow-up on that in, in just a moment. But if you would humor me, just one more question on, on the Dead Sea Scrolls. You said that they all came out in... They, they're now in full since the 1990... So are, is, there, is there certainty that everything is there now? Yes, we, we now know that they are all out. I actually had the privilege of bringing some of them out, as it were. Uh, it was, I was involved in quite a bit of controversy in an earlier stage of my life, fighting for the release of the scrolls. And um, that's another story maybe for another time. It was highly political. Sure. Um, actually cost me a job at one wow. point in my life. But well worth it. And uh, now that these texts are out, I can affirm... We have them all. Uh, there are, however, I should say this, there are persistent rumors that there may be some additional texts that have never been actually uh, acknowledged to exist that may exist in private collections. You know, there's a lot of stuff that goes on with the, stu with the field of antiquities in the world today. That is, things that happen on the black market, you might say, and wealthy people obtain things for their own personal collections. And that has happened in the history of 
study of the, of the world of Jesus. So I don't, I don't say it as a certainty that we have absolutely everything, but let me say it this way. We have everything that we know, we ha- that, that we know to exist. It's, it's helpful. I, I had, I had in the back of my mind, I recalled some of that history, which is what prompted me to ask. You know, we, uh, we just finished a conversation in the first hour with Barry Rowan, who was talking about how God works through our employment and our our way of making a living to accomplish His will. And so, um, it, it's interesting to hear you talk about having lost a job over something like this. We just came out of that conversation, so it gives us helpful context there. Let's let's get into the book of James a little bit. And as I as I mentioned uh, leading into the conversation, I spent some time with it today looking forward to this conversation. I know you have uh, taken a very deep dive into it. I, I think you, you teach from it. Um, and, and I want to spend some time here drawing on your experience specifically about the context and the, and the cultural context of the book. And I think a good place to start there is maybe with the author. And I think that some of the information about the author will probably uh, surprise some folks. So let's start there. Tell us about the author of the book of James. Well, first of all, there is no James. Mm-hmm. There's only a Jacob. <laughs> <laughs> Most people don't know that actually the name James is a kind of Greek equivalent for the name Jacob. And and that's one explanation. There are two two explanations for why we have the name James when the actual name is Jacob. And I can talk about that in a minute if you'd like me to. But the actual name of this person who was the brother of Jesus, probably his oldest brother, was Jacob ben Joseph. Jacob, the son of Joseph. And that's the, the name he would have heard all his life. That's the name his brother Jesus would have called him by. Although in Hebrew, he would have said, Yaakov, Yaakov. But uh, that would be the same person. And, and so immediately once we recognize that, and by the way, that's what the, the Greek text says, the original text of the New Testament does call him that. Uh, it's the English translations that give the other name. Uh, once, as soon as we embrace that reality that that's his actual name, we immediately are stepping further into the the Jewish context of the early faith. We often forget that all those believers that we read about in the Book of Acts, until we come up with Paul and start to go out into the first and second missionary journeys and things like that, all of the believers were Jewish. And, of course, Jesus was and is now a Jewish man. That is, when we meet Jesus in heaven, we will meet a Jewish man. He still has a body. If you're an Orthodox person in your theology, you know that. And he is a Jewish man. And bridging that gap is a step towards understanding our faith better. I love it so much, uh, Dr. Wise. This is something that I think is especially relevant now, right? And we this yes. is something I've been uh, writing about in, in my newsletters. We talk about current events, uh, God's special covenant with the Jewish people. Of course, that covenant is expanded on the cross to those of us who are not Jewish. But going back to something that you answered with earlier, uh, I think one of the questions might be, you know, why would we need this context? And um, I, I think understanding the context, Context, understanding the world of Jesus and, and the world that was around him helps us to understand that person of Jesus. And so that's why 
why we're engaging uh, this conversation. We're going to take a, a short break. We'll pick the conversation up on the other side. My guest is Dr. Michael Wise. We are talking about the book of James. We're specifically talking about the context of it to allow us to understand the content a little bit better. And if time allows, we'll look at some of that content as well. And, and hopefully the context that Dr. Wise is talking about will, will inform it for us. But we'll pick the conversation back up on the other side of this break. I'm Than Bennett in for Bill today, and we'll be back right after this. Oh, life can be filled with distractions. I saw a survey that said the average person will look at their phone 320 times a day. This Lent, let's take a moment to step away from all the distractions and let's read the Bible together. You can start this wonderful program called Reading the Bible Together with Us and you can learn how to better connect with God through His Word and through studying ancient disciplines practiced by Jesus himself. You can sign up for this free study now at myfaithradio.com. Let's spend this season of Lent focusing on our Savior, on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and what fuels our minds and our hearts to be more devoted followers of Jesus. Again, sign up for the free study now at myfaithradio.com. It's the afternoon show. I am Than Bennett in for Bill Arnold today. My guest is Dr. Michael Wise, and we are talking about the book of James, or maybe we should call it the book of Jacob. Before the break, Dr. Wise was telling us that James's name was really Jacob Ben Joseph. So I want to follow up on that a little bit, Michael. You uh, said so Jacob Ben Joseph. That's helpful context. So I will try to use Jacob. I don't know if I can do it. I have to be honest with you. It's, this is pretty ingrained in me, but we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, so, okay. What, what can you tell us about Jacob's upbringing? What would have informed the way that he viewed the world? And, and, and how can that help us as we read the book of James? Well, that's a great question, and it's an important question because people are shaped by their life as they come up, aren't they? I mean, everyone is. Mm -hmm. And so Jacob grew up as uh, one of five brothers. Jesus had four brothers, so Jacob was had had four brothers too. And there were at least two sisters in the family. It seems that their their father Joseph died when Jacob was probably about 13, judging from what we have as clues in the New Testament, we know that Jesus' father, uh, as people sometimes thought, uh, Joseph, was alive when Jesus was 12, according to Luke, uh, when they went to the temple and found Jesus uh, sitting there talking things over with the priests. Maybe some of your listeners will remember that story in the New Testament. But he, Joseph disappears after that from the text. He's not there during the time of Jesus' ministry as we read about Jesus going around teaching and we read about his family and certain things that happened uh, with the family and Jesus that are in the New Testament, some of which we might get into today. So we can assume, I think, that Joseph was no longer on the scene by the time that Jacob came to be the age of maturity or majority in that culture, about 13, the time when a person would know the difference between good and evil. Uh, as they thought. Today, it's the time of the bar mitzvah. And at that time, uh, he was 
he would have been trained as he was probably as a young man, even much younger than that, to be a carpenter. Jesus was a carpenter. Joseph was a carpenter. All the brothers were carpenters. That's how that world worked. What your father was, if you were a boy, you became uh, in almost in almost every case. So the whole family of brothers were carpenters, just as Jesus was a carpenter, so too Jacob. And he would have been taught in the, in the local synagogue. Uh, there was a synagogue we know in, from Scripture there, right there in Nazareth, as small as that community was. It was only a few hundred people at most. They were highly intermarried. That is to say, almost everyone in the village were relatives uh, at maybe one or two removes. So everybody you, Jesus grew up with, his whole town, were people that were his his family, first cousins, second cousins, they didn't get much further away than that, and maybe two or three families as a whole. So a small group, all of, almost all of them, family. And that matters when we read later in Scripture that Jesus' hometown rejected him because it's really his family, uh, family members, not every single one, but a lot of them. And that's something we may talk about because it figures into this whole story of Jacob. So he... Uh, he grew up as a carpenter. He, he was trained in the study of the, of the holy books, uh, to some degree at least. It was uncommon for a carpenter to be fully literate, but we know that Jesus was, and I think that it's likely that uh, J- Jacob was as well from the fact that he wrote a book. Uh, and, and so at least he became literate. He wasn't already literate as a, uh, as a young boy. Uh, by the time he was a leader in the church later, he was a literate person. And he was undoubtedly greatly affected when, at the age of approximately 30, Jesus up and left the family. And we can talk about that, uh, Than, if you'd like to do that, because it was a big factor in the relationship between the two men for a period of time. Yeah, let, let, let's pull on that thread. But let me let me ask one follow up first about uh, Joseph. He, you know, the father of Jacob or James and, and and Jesus. And and you you mentioned that we don't know a whole lot, at least from Scripture, about why there was a separation. I'm wondering, I'm wondering about scholarship on this. Dude, is there is there a, a thought or at least a uh, any kind of a consensus on what it likely means? What likely happened? Do we know or do we just do we not? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. That's a great question, and there's more than one thread there, actually. So we know from Scripture that Jesus became a disciple of John the Baptist, or as he would have been known, Yonatan HaMatbil. Uh, the Matbil means the, the baptizer. He was uh, John the baptizer. That's how his Hebrew would have been heard, as it were. And Jesus left and became a disciple of his, according to the book of, of John. And we don't know this, uh, these details from the other, other Gospels. This is what I'm about to say. He, he spent time as a disciple of John the Baptist, and that sometimes surprises people. While he was a disciple with John the Baptist, he met a number of men who later became his own disciples. And so the fact that Jesus had left his home in, in Nazareth and traveled down to the south to the area kind of near Jericho, which is where John the Baptist was operating at the time— uh, that was a breach in the family. I'm certain that it was a huge issue because Jesus was the eldest brother. Now that uh, Joseph, the, the 
the, the eldest male in the family had passed on, Jesus' responsibility was to shoulder the, the family business and to take care of his mother, now a widow, and to guide the family in all of the affairs of life. And now he had left. Uh, I think that was a significant issue in, between uh, the brothers. And, uh, of course, we know something more about that from Mary's side of things, from Scripture. She had knowledge and insider information, you might say, about what was going on that I don't believe the others knew. That is, Scripture suggests that it's very private. She ponders these things in her heart, we're told, in the book of Luke. And then Jesus' actions, after, after he left John the Baptist, set up uh, a shop, so to speak, further north. Uh, his disciples were baptizing. Jesus wasn't, but they were sort of, in a sense, a second baptizing group. And after a period of time, Jesus and his disciples left and went to Galilee and began what we call his ministry in Galilee. And the things that Jesus was doing, healing, preaching the kingdom, driving out demons, none of those things were things his family had ever seen him do. And they were not the things carpenters did. I mean, if anybody was going to do those things, teaching scripture in public was, a, was the, thing, the work of scribes and and professionals, you might say, people who had the equivalent of what we call a PhD, not carpenters or plumbers. or You know, that wasn't the role of the such people in that culture. Jesus was doing that. It, his family came to think that Jesus was, frankly, the, the Greek says, um, struggling with his mental health. Hmm. Uh, so, we can pursue that. Okay, so let me let me see if I can sort of reset this a little bit. Je- Jesus left to become a disciple of John the Baptist. I, I, I have to admit, Michael, I, I don't think I have ever uh, heard the narrative uh, spelled out that way. But he leaves to become a disciple of Jesus Christ, and then uh, his brother Jacob, who we, we often, or at least I know as James, the author of James, was sort of left to pick up the slack in his family. Do do I have that much right? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Because okay. he was the next in line. He was the second oldest son. Okay, so if I'm Jacob, and you kind of alluded to this, but that's probably a pretty big issue for me. I, I probably uh, don't want my brother leaving. I probably uh, resent the fact that I now have to carry uh, the burden and and the responsibility. Um, what? Give, give us give us the cultural context for this. This was this was Jesus's job. It sounds like, and now it falls to Jacob. Does that does that mean that it's automatically? Uh, Jacob's job now, or would would it be up to him whether or not he stepped into that role? No, that would be the cultural expectation. The eldest son would take that role, and if the eldest son were somehow out of function, so to speak, uh, the next one would. And and so that's what we would assume went on, and there's no reason to doubt that. We know that his brothers uh, uh, followed Jesus for a period of time during his Galilean ministry, and then there was a breach in the family, which we can talk about. I think some of the things Jesus was saying, they simply couldn't go there, as it were. Uh, and as, in fact, was true for many of Jesus' followers, according to the book of John. I'm thinking of the sixth chapter as we turn to the seventh chapter for our listeners. If they're not uh, familiar with this and wanted to look at it, I'm not saying things that aren't told us. I'm, these things are right there in the text. It's not inference. Uh, there was a let's say they couldn't follow Jesus all the way when it comes to who he was. 
and his statements about who he was. They had not heard him say these things. And so uh, it was a significant issue for the family. And uh, for, for Jacob, I think he felt that Jesus had betrayed him hmm. and betrayed the family. And it took a lot to get past that. And in fact, of course, they ultimately did because Jacob became a follower of Jesus and, of course, one of the leaders of the early church. In fact, as a, it's not inaccurate to say he was the bishop of the early church. He was the worldwide leader of the early church. If you wanted to say, who was the, the man in the early church? It was Jacob. We can talk about why. Yeah, I want to unpack uh, how Jacob became a follower of Jesus, how he was a leader in the church. But I want to go back and uh, unpack a little bit of something you said a moment ago about uh, the, the the moment where Jesus is back in Nazareth. And I think probably most of us are familiar with that. But, but give us some more context there. Given this family dynamic of a family being pulled apart because Jesus has left, now that they're back in the same place— are they back on the same page, or what, what? What do we know about that? Maybe that encounter that we know they're together. What What, what happened in Nazareth? Jesus, when, when Jesus returned to Galilee after having been with John the Baptist and then having for a little while uh, been on his own, he, he went first to Capernaum, and that's where he he settled in. And Capernaum is on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, a day's distance from from his hometown, Nazareth. And it was a, a confluence uh, of roads, and it was a place where Jesus could get the message out, and it would go in every direction over the road system of the time and over the, over the water. So it was a practical decision if he wanted his message to spread. At, at, but at a certain point, after having taught in synagogues in the region and having a, create, created quite a sensation with his healing and his message, Jesus went home. And we're told about this in, in the Gospels. Uh, it's a story that all four of the Gospels have in one way or another. And Jesus was asked to speak in the synagogue, we're told. I think that was probably not the first time he'd ever done it. Uh, he had probably been recognized as a prodigy uh, in, in the study of the Scriptures when he was young. Uh, and so I don't think this is the first time they've, that the townspeople have ever heard him talk in the context of the synagogue. But now he was, of course, a very different figure in terms of the way he was seen and I think his his own understanding of what he was doing. So when they so Jesus got up and read from a familiar text in the book of Isaiah. And that that talked about a figure known as the servant of the Lord who in this passage, chapter 61 of the book of Isaiah, uh, declares that the Spirit of, of the Lord is upon him, which was, in fact, exactly what had happened. Jesus had been, had been enveloped, if you want to use that term, by the Spirit of the Lord at the time of his baptism as he saw the Spirit come down in the form of a dove. And this was the beginning of his public ministry. So Jesus is declaring this event, in a sense, by saying that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and he, and, he appoint, and he begins to talk about this text as describing himself, uh, which was 
a, a, a truly fantastic claim in the eyes of most of the people who were all his relatives for the most part or people close to him that he'd known all his life. And uh, they, they were willing to hear some, some of it, but as he talked further, they were offended, and finally they came to the conclusion that he was blasphemous, and they actually mm. tried to stone him, which was the, or throw him off a cliff, and then, or stone him first and throw him off a cliff, which would have been the normal practice. Uh, that is, they wouldn't throw him off alive. And, uh, and this led to a huge uproar. Jesus walked through the crowd. We're not told exactly how that happened. It's not portrayed as a miraculous event. We're, it's hard. We're not really told exactly what that meant, but he was not seized and, and left the town. And for a period of time, his family was with him. They were all ostracized. Uh, so his brother, Jacob, his mother, Mary, his other brothers, and his sisters all went back to Capernaum. This is stuff we know from the gospel, only from the gospel of John. Fascinating stuff, and it just it, it does add so much color to the book of James as we read it. I want to get into some of the substance a little bit later. Um, just to reset the scene here for those who are listening, my guest is Dr. Michael Wise. He's walking us through some of the cultural context behind the author of the book of James, whose name would have been Jacob Ben Joseph, the brother of Jesus, and how Jesus' departure from the family to become a follower or a disciple of John the Baptist would have caused a divide in the family because Jacob, who we know as James, would have been left to pick up the slack that Jesus left behind. So absolutely fascinating context. Uh, Michael, we're going to go to a break. We'll pick the conversation up on the other side. Um, I appreciate the context. Much of this is stuff that I have not heard before, friends, and so I'm I'm fascinated by it. We'll, we'll finish walking through the narrative, and then we'll get into some of the content of the book of James. Again, my guest, Dr. Michael Wise, we're talking about the book of James and the cultural context that would have uh, been around the author, Jacob Ben Joseph. I'm Than Bennett, in for Bill Arnold this afternoon, and we'll be back right after this. It's the afternoon show. I'm Than Bennett filling in for Bill Arnold today. Folks, I'm I'm totally fascinated. We're having a great conversation with Dr. Michael Wise, and he is giving us the context and the cultural context around the family of Jesus. Uh, Jesus's brother, who we know as James, but his, his name would have been Jacob Ben Joseph, uh, the author of the book of James. They were brothers. The father was in the household was Joseph. A lot of this is information that I have not heard or at least known uh, before. And one of the things before the break is we did a, a quick reset. When Jesus left to become a disciple of John the Baptist, it very likely would have caused a rift in the family and specifically between Jesus and his brother Jacob, because Jacob would have been left to fulfill the role that Jesus should have been filling in the family, a role of responsibility. And so that caused a rift in the family, which adds so much color and context to the other stories that we read about about this time. You know, when, when Jesus came into uh, the synagogue in Nazareth and and when he would have had interactions with his 
his family again. So, uh, uh, Dr. Wise, I wanted to ask you a couple more questions as we as we finish out the narrative here. But have I have I reset the stage? Have I set the scene accurately? Did I leave anything out based on the ground we've covered so far? I think we're in great shape here, Than. It would be good for everybody to keep in mind, and we really haven't talked about the the fact of the Jewishness of of Jesus and Jacob and the life that they had shared together. Uh, it's not something that most of us uh, know as our own experience. We may have Jewish friends, but many of Jewish friends are not necessarily that observant. And so we have to imagine the life that we're talking about, a life that's very much tied to what they call the Torah, which we call the scriptures and most particularly the books of Moses, and to things like the purity laws that talk about what happens if you touch a dead animal and how you purify in order to be able to go to the temple again and eating according to kosher food laws and the various different festivals that were very much a part of life that three times a year they would travel to Jerusalem from Galilee to attend. It's a life of uh, uh, very much attached to the Old Testament covenant of God, and it's a world that most of us as modern Christians are, really aren't familiar with. And it keeps us from understanding not only Jesus, but also his brother Jacob, who's the author of the book of, that we call the Letter of James. So let's let's factor that in in our minds. Yeah, absolutely. Torah observant would have been very significant in their family life. During the break, uh, Michael, you were telling me about an incident that would have happened at Peter's house. I don't think... Um, I don't think this is something that I have heard before, at least not as you were describing it. What, what, what happened at Peter's house that would have been significant? In the, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, towards the end of the chapter, we read about a, a situation where Jesus was in the house that he usually stayed in when he was in Capernaum. Remember, that's where he normally yeah, lived okay. in his Galilee period. He lived in Capernaum, not in Nazareth, uh, as, a, as, a, as an adult minister. And... On one occasion in that house, which was the house of Peter, uh, his family came and knocked on the door. He was inside surrounded by a, a whole group of people. He was so so thickly surrounded with the, that he couldn't even eat, neither he nor his disciples. And people were asking for healing, and, and they, he was teaching. And you have to imagine it was quite a scene. And his family is outside, and they're saying, we need Jesus to come out. Uh, they had... According to Mark's narrative, they had come to think that Jesus was beside himself. That's the literal Greek mm. here, from which we get our word ecstasy. The, ex, the Greek is ecstasis, which is a way of saying that they thought he was a little bit disturbed. They, they, they were trying to understand that how could a man that they had grown up with and known his whole life, and remember, there are things that only Mary knows about Jesus, mm. uh, uh, how could it be that this Jesus that they've known all their lives is now healing and doing miracles? They had never seen this. He had not done that all his life until he went to John. Uh, and I can explain that if it needs to be explained. And, so, and he's now teaching and he's saying things like, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. These kind of statements that, have, that aren't statements that ordinary people make. And they didn't know how to f understand them. And so they, this caused a breach because Jesus said, look, my family is all those who live by the will of God. 
in, in a way, in a roundabout way, he's kind of casting uh, doubt on whether his family is in fact doing that in making these kind of objections to what he was, what he was doing. And it caused a breach in the family that was only repaired um, sometime later. In fact, some scholars think only after Jesus was resurrected. That's fascinating. Let me let me pull the thread on how Jacob becomes a follower of Jesus because obviously we know that he we know that he does. He wrote the book of James. We have a lot of writing. Obviously, he becomes a follower of Jesus. But let's let's kind of fill that in from where we left off. Jesus obviously has built this name for himself. Uh, that's probably understating it. He's he's performing miracles. He's drawing crowds. Some people love him. Some people hate him. Somewhere along the line there, Jacob obviously has a change of heart. So so walk us walk us through that, if you would. Obviously, the whole reason we're having this conversation is because we know where he lands. But what, what, what do we know about what changed his mind? According to the book of 1 Corinthians, written, of course, by the Apostle Paul, Jesus actually appeared to his brother after the resurrection— 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 7, tells us that after Jesus was buried and raised on the third day, he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, and then it, then we're told to others, and finally we're told that he appeared to James, or our man, Jacob. Hmm. So a, a specific appearance to his brother. I think that's extremely meaningful. And, and it wasn't just, hey, bro, look at me. Just in case you were wondering, I'm okay, so to speak. No, it wasn't about that. It was a, I think it was almost certainly, as it was with all the other appearances of Jesus that we read about in the, in the Gospels, a time of commission where he gave his brother a role that he was to fulfill in the going, going forward in the, in the movement that we call Christianity. And, and, and of course, uh, this was an incredible moment between the two of them, uh, Whatever his brother had thought about Jesus, now he could, he could not deny the, inc- frankly, impossible claims, you might say, that Jesus had made, uh, that had made him wonder about Jesus' mental health. He could see with his own eyes, he was looking at the glorified Lord Jesus that we know. I mean, the guy could walk through walls and um, he could radiate light to the degree it would literally blind a person, as he did to Paul. On, on the occasion that they met on the Damascus Road. And I believe that we can, we, as we examine things, that we can arrive at the conclusion that Jesus told his brother that he was to be the leader of the movement as it goes forward. In other words, this might be surprising to people who are used to being told the Catholic view, that it's Peter who's the leader of the early church. It was not. It was Jacob. That is unbelievable. I just, what a moment, what a moment that must have been when uh, Jesus appeared to his brother. Um, Dr. Wise, I have three brothers, and I have to tell you, the fact that Jesus' (laughs) brother 
believes in him and believes that he is the Messiah, that might be one of the strongest pieces of evidence that it is true that we have. I, I can tell you that none of my brothers would ever believe that about me, and I would never believe that about them. That is fascinating, fascinating. I appreciate you sharing that context. We're going to go to a break here in just a moment. If if any of you missed part of this conversation, I want you to go back after the show and and, and listen to uh, the podcast version of it, because this context brings to life the book of James in a new way. I, I read the book of James this morning. Um, I, I'm going to read it again uh, tomorrow morning in light of this conversation with Dr. Wise. Fascinating context. When we come back from the break, I actually want to uh, get some of Dr. Wise's um, uh, favorite passages from the book of James, given this context. I've got a few that I want to pull out as well, but I want to pick his brain on what makes this uh, fascinating book stand out against that cultural context. Again, I'm Than Bennett. I'm sitting in for Bill Arnold this afternoon. My guest is Dr. Wise, and we are talking about the book of James, written not by James, well, by James, but he would have been known by Jacob Ben Joseph. We'll be back with more after this. If you'd like to know more about what it means to begin a relationship with Christ or to chat with someone about it, just text the word FAITH to 41224. It's the afternoon show with Bill Arnold. I'm Than Bennett in for Bill today. Uh, I've got to tell you, this is a conversation with Dr. Michael Wise that is um, certainly informing me of things I did not know, and it's causing me to look at the book of James a little bit differently. If you missed any of this conversation, go back and listen to uh, Dr. Wise tell us about the family culture, the cultural context that Jesus would have been raised in, and how it would have impacted the way that his brother James, then known as Jacob, uh, with the impact it would have had on him. And it will cause you to read the book of James with fresh eyes. Dr. Wise, I want to now talk about some of the content of the book of James. And I opened the show by reading the very first verse of James. I want to I know you have some thoughts about that first verse. Tell us about the first verse. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Yes, then. Let's look at that verse a little bit. Now, you understand, everybody needs to understand that this text is originally written in the Greek language, and what you read was an English translation. What version were you reading, do you, do you know? I was reading from the NIV. The NIV, which is a good translation on the whole. But... Let me read my own translation of chapter 1, verse 1. Jacob, servant of God and the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, to the 12 dispersed tribes who are living abroad, greetings. Now, what you notice right away there is the word Messiah, I think. We, we always take the word Christ, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think most of us more or less think of it as a last name. <laughs> I mean, what is that exactly? And it is a Greek rendering of, of the Hebrew term anointed, which in Hebrew is Mashiach, and in Greek is Christos, and it becomes the name Christ. But what James would have heard with it as a speaker of Greek and Hebrew, and what everyone who read this at the time he wrote would have understood from it once it was explained to them if they weren't a speaker of Hebrew, because Christos doesn't mean anything normally in Greek, um, he would have, it means the Messiah. The Lord Jesus, the Messiah, he believed his brother was the Messiah. 
and he is also the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. There's an enormous amount of content in those verses that tells us an enormous amount about his theology. And as you said, then, it's amazing that he could believe these things about his own brother. Um, because, of course, he had grown up with Jesus and had known Jesus all his life. And the Jesus that he knew all his life, even though he had had a period of time when he was a little upset with his brother, that, bro- that brother he had known all his life was fully consistent with these other terms, that he is Lord and that he is the Messiah. That is an incredible thing that, that I think is worthy of quite a bit of time spent meditating for anybody who wants to think about just this letter. Start there. The idea Lord means that he has been resurrected and is ascended and is at the right hand of God the Father. That's what the term Lord means. It's part of, of, of the gospel that we can't leave out when we talk about Jesus. He died for our sins. He was resurrected, uh, raised from the dead, that is, and he ascended, and he is now at the right hand of God the Father, and he is reigning. That's what the term Lord means. That's what, that's what Jacob believed about his brother. And he was the Messiah. There's a whole theology and a whole history and a whole Old Testament uh, context that's carried by that word. For most of us, as as readers of the New Testament, take some work to to get on top of it, uh, and we. So what what am I saying when I when I translate this? The Lord Jesus Messiah. I'm immediately thrust back into the Jewishness of our faith, of the gospel, of Jesus, of Jacob, and of everyone who believed in Jesus and followed Jesus for the first fifty or sixty years of Christianity. And I'm thrust into a world where people are what we call in Torah observant. Jesus was Torah observant. He observed the Torah. That's a whole life. Jacob was that too. So were all the people in Jerusalem. And as, as the gospel spread and went out into the Gentile world, that concept of Torah observance became a question and an, and an issue. To what degree... Should the followers of Jesus, who were, who were Gentiles, be also followers of Torah? And this became quite a controversy. It was a huge issue. And we, we lose this when we, when we forget the Jewishness of our origin. And we also lose um, the idea that it's very important in the letters of Paul that we are ourselves Jews. The, fo- the true followers of mm-hmm. Jesus are Jews by that very fact that they are the true followers of Jesus, the Lord, the Messiah. Uh, and so I'll, I'll leave that for a moment. So rich, so beautiful. I, I keep, and I know this is a, is a bit simplistic against the, uh, that backdrop, but I keep coming back to the miracle that is uh, his brother, who he had childhood fights with, his brother who he, uh, you know, played games with in, in, in the road, very likely his brother, who he had more serious disputes with as they grew because he, he went and left, he left and abandoned him and left Jacob to fill the role that Jesus was supposed to roll. That brother is the one that is convinced that Jesus is the Messiah. I just, I I think that is a piece of evidence that I hadn't fully considered before. I am absolutely convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, but that I think that is a, the weight of that evidence, Dr. Wise, is so significant. And I'm grateful to you for bringing it to light for me 
and for our listeners, we've got we've got a couple of minutes left here. I I, I pulled several verses out that I was going to ask about you, but I uh, ask you about. But I've got to be honest with you. I did not consider it against the backdrop of a lot of this. And so, what I actually want to do is I want to ask you for maybe a passage that you think it, uh, it has new light shed on it, given all of which you just shared. What would be what would be a passage or two that you would have us to look at with fresh eyes? Let me give you an example. I actually have the uh, the New American Standard uh, translation of the book of the book of James uh, in front of me, and I'm looking at chapter one, verses 20, 26 and twenty seven. And here's what it says: If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father to visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Now, how would that be read if we look at the Greek with a more a Jewish kind of way of thinking, because that's who Jacob was, that's who Jesus was. And this letter, I, we haven't gotten into this, but this letter is perhaps the earliest of all the writings of the New Testament. So it's very, very early in the story of our faith. And here's a translation. If anyone believes themselves Torah observant, but doesn't bridle their tongue, they are deceiving themselves. This person's observance is futile. Pure and undefiled Torah observance before our God and Father is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Notice how different that sounds with just one Greek word translated differently. The word that gets translated as religion or religious I translate it as observance or Torah observant. It's a particular Greek word. That could be a whole discussion for several minutes. But it is not correct to say religion in the ancient world because what we think of as religion today, no one had that concept. In our minds today, religion is a thing that's a separate category. We've got a religion. We've got politics. We've got sports. We've got careers. And in the ancient world, there was no separation between religion and everything else, including politics, most especially, of course. And so, um, when when you say you're religious, you're, as soon as you use that kind of phraseology, you're imposing on the ancient world a worldview that didn't exist, ours. Hmm. If we want to understand them in their own terms, we have to understand the term as it would have been understood contextually and in the ethnic environment of the Jews. And that would be Torah observant. Instantly again, look how Jewish. Hmm. Dr. Wise, I, I think the thing that is the most prescient to me about that is it would have been uh, Jacob uh, ascribing that to his family. He was saying that this is this is him. They were Torah observant. This applied to him. It's still amazing to me that he then became a leading follower of Jesus. Uh, we're out of time, Dr. Wise. Thank you so much for being with us. So grateful for your insights. Uh, friends, wh why does this matter? Why do we need to know the context? We need to know the context of this story because the world around Jesus helps us understand the person of Jesus. I'm Than Bennett, sitting in for Bill today. Thank you so much for being with us, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.